Alrighty, can you guys hear me? Thanks, Jason. Alright, well, hopefully you guys can hear me. Um, so yeah, so my name is Calvin. Um, I don't know if many of you guys do know me or don't know me, uh, but that's fine. Uh, but <laughs> my name is Calvin. I've been to, I actually used to serve at Kairos um, a while ago, um, back when I was younger. Uh, so, but then I aged out and I became old and my back hurt. So I was like, I don't think Kairos is where I should attend, but more serve at. So phased out, I got married, have a wife, have a kid. Life is great. He's crying right now. So it's not too good, but I'm, I'm not there. And she is. But anyway, so, uh, so besides that, you guys have maybe seen me around through the Estonia missions trip as well. Um, I helped co-lead that with Josh um, and with all our amazing um, people that came with us. And so hopefully you have somewhat seen me. I'm not too weird and like out there for you, but I am who I am. So uh, I am not the pastor if this is your first time here at Cairo. So please come back again so you can uh, don't be dismissed or afraid by me. Um, And if I say anything that you guys don't like, um, Josh, your email is, we'll put it up there later. And Josh will deal with it. I just come and leave. Um, But yeah, so uh, Josh has given me the privilege and the opportunity to be able to speak to you guys, uh, to be able to speak God's word to you guys, um, as he is obviously awaiting uh, his precious baby. And uh, so through his joy, I also receive joy in being able to, um, just being able to study God's word and to hopefully speak it truthfully to you guys um, in the way that God desires it and not of my own um, ideas or opinions. So that is kind of my, just kind of giving you guys why I'm up here in my heart about it. So, uh, you guys have been going through Judges. Uh, this is about your third week, and um, obviously, as you guys know, just a quick recap, the book of Judges comes right after Joshua, right? So we have the people of Israel in Egypt, or the Hebrews in Egypt being slave, enslaved. Moses rides up, rises up, takes the people out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness for 40 years, messing up. And then into the promised land they go through Joshua. Joshua conquers all these lands, and there they are. And then we get to Judges and all the things that they mess up on, right? So just a quick recap just so, for you guys to know, like, this is what Judges is about, is the cycle, right? Uh, Josh talked about it a little bit about the first week and how the big theme of Judges is this consistent cycle that we see on, going on and on again. And it goes something like this. Step one is usually uh, the people of God fall into sin. They start to sin and they leave God, they abandon his ways and fall into sin. Step two is that through God's punishment and his discipline, he brings others, other nations to come and oppress them, to punish them, and to just kind of really give them a hard time. The people feel that oppression, they feel sad, they're like, oh, this sucks, why are we doing this? And they cry out and they turn to God. And through their crying out, through their turning away from their sin onto God, God then redeems them, saves them through a judge. He raises up a judge to come and deliver the people. And then they are delivered from that nation. That other nation goes away. Israel is at peace again, living great with this judge. And then the judge dies. And the people of Israel do again what is evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And there's this continuous cycle that keeps going on and on with Judges, and it doesn't change, and it might be repetitive, actually. And you might be reading through Judges, like, are you freaking serious? Like, again, Israel? Like, again? Like, do you just not know to not, just that evil thing? Just stop it. Just move on. But uh, they don't. And so the cycle continues. So tonight we'll be going through chapters 4 through 5. And we're going to be reading about a judge named Deborah and a man named Barak. Um, So go ahead and turn to Judges 4 through 5. And we will be focusing on, um, as we read through these chapters, how God saves Israel despite their disobedience. Right? And it's kind of a given when we read about, when we think of the cycle, we're like, well, well, yeah, like, they, you know, they disobey, they oppress, they cry, God saves them, I get it. But through, through these four, through, these, through chapter four and five, we actually see more of this disobedience kind of happening, and we start seeing God's hand more present in his actual moving within the people, and we start seeing, like, wow, like, these people are really hard-headed. This guy is really disobedient, yet God continues to save. And so the overarching theme, the overarching thesis that we'll be kind of going over for tonight would be, um, as it says in your notes, salvation despite disobedience. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, God, just thank you, Lord, for tonight. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity that you've given me to be able to speak your word, to speak it truthfully, Lord. God, as, uh, as we just wrestle with these ideas, uh, with these concepts, with these truths, Lord, let us be able to come to your word humbly, uh, to see it as authority, to learn from it, to um, be molded by it, God. And through that, we can see your holiness, your glory. Um, we can see our need and dependency on you, Lord, um, And so, God, just be with us tonight. Whatever is distracting us, whatever is coming into our minds, whatever might be just just allowing us to not pay attention or to be distracted, God, that you can help us um, have self-control, to be present in where we are, mindful, um, and to be able to take these things and apply it to our lives and to each other through community. So be with us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so, chapter 4. Let's jump right into it. Verses 1 through 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Haraseth Hagoim. Sorry if I mispronounced that. I'm not a Hebrew major. But then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So the story quickly picks up, and it places us into the middle of that cycle. We see that Israel is doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And because of that, they're being oppressed. And so the, the author is very clear and wants us to understand that. Was that? The author is very clear and wants us to understand that Israel is not a victim here. They're not this poor, innocent country that is just minding their own business, doing their own thing, and all along comes this big, bad nation, Canaan, and they're just terrorizing the Israelites. He starts off by letting us know, no, 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 that Israel once again did what was evil 
in the sight of the Lord. They have sinned against the Lord. They were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And although the text doesn't clearly state what was this evil, what was going on, um, as we can read from chapter 2 previously, in verses 11 through 15, it kind of gives us an understanding, a generalization of what this consistent evil uh, would happen. So 11, verses 11 through 15, kind of the author generalizes and summarizes essentially what is this evil that continues to happen to Israel. And we see that their tendency or their bent towards sin was their abandonment of God to turn towards false gods of the nations around them. They would forsake the commandments of God. They would not want to obey him and submit to him, but rather they were enticed and they, were, they had itching ears and they, they, they wanted else. They wanted false gods. They wanted other things that, that made their eyes bright up and they, just, they wanted anything but God or God plus other things. So they wanted to add. And what happens is, as we're understanding the book of Judges, right, it takes place. I mean, literally, this, this nation is such a, is a brand new baby nation. Comes out of this miraculous salvation, deliverance, out of Egypt through this miraculous Red Sea, splitting up, going through the middle, crashing down. They're seeing, like, all this amazing stuff. They're in the wilderness for 40, 40 years with their sandals not tearing up and food being given to them, all this miraculous things. They go through this land that is already occupied by other nations, yet they have victory through everything they go. But their hearts desire false gods. They desire to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Sometimes I look at Israel, I'm like, man, Israel's like that dog that like when he sees a squirrel, you know, you're like playing with the dog and you're like, hey, look at this ball. And he's like, oh, this is the best. Is that a squirrel? You know, and Israel's that same way where they're like, oh, here's God, like my redeemer, my deliverer. Like I can't, who's that? Is that, is that Baal? Like, oh, what did he have over? I know, but, and you're just like, Israel, come on. bro. But we can't be too harsh on Israel because at times we are like that as well. We are quick to turn. We are quick to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so, what does God do? He decides to sell them. It's kind of a weird um, term to, for God to use. That he says he sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. We see that the reason for the oppression, the, the, the hand who is orchestrating this, the person who is behind all this is God himself. He hands over Israel. He gives them into another nation for them to oppress, for them to cause chaos, to oppress them heavily. And so we see that God hands them over to the king of Canaan, Jabin. And in Jabin, we see that he has a commander named Sisera. And Sisera has this grand army with 900 chariots made of iron. And he has, and you just can just imagine like, Man, that is a fleet, like 900 chariots with two people on it, with horses and swords. And you're just like, if that thing comes rumbling down, like we're all running. And so he, he, it's this presence of power, it's this presence of strength that he is oppressing the people. And for 20 years, he oppresses the nation of Israel. And we see that God is disciplining Israel. 
he is disciplining them by handing them over to other nations. We have to understand that the Israel, remember, Israel is not a poor little victim. They're not this innocent entity or state that were just minding their own business and all of a sudden big, bad, mean old God just said, hey, guess what? A nation's coming in and they're going to take over you. They're going to oppress you. And you better worship me still. That's, <laughs> at times we, 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 we mistake the identity of the one who is being oppressed or the one that is under God's hand or under God's wrath. And we like to think that most people are innocent. We like to think that we are this innocent people that didn't deserve what is happening to us. And though God does not operate in, the, in, in that way where he now sees your sin and decides to punish you here on this earth, like Josh was mentioning how the church is not meant for that. God doesn't operate in that way anymore. He operates through grace, but through his children, he disciplines. He sees them in sin. He sees their need to grow. And like we sang earlier, though you slay me, I worship you. And that's like, if you guys think about it, that's such a crazy thing to sing. Like, you guys all sing it. You guys are weird. You guys all sing, though you slay me and hurt me and break me and bring me down, I will worship you. And you're like, why? Why would you, are you like have Stockholm Syndrome? Like, what's going on? Like, why would you do that? Why would you worship someone that hurts you? What is the purpose of God's discipline? What is the purpose of his hand feeling so weighty on top of us? And that is what we have to understand and what we have to see is that as God oppresses and he pushes his hand on Israel, as he pushes his hand on us, as he breaks us down, he is building us up in Christ. He is growing us and leading us away from sin. The hurt that we feel is not necess- necessarily a result of God's, like, a, like, oh man, like God's love hurts. Like, I can't, like, that can last forever. But the, God's love hurts because the reality is that we are sinful. We are sinful people. We love sinful things. We like to listen to, we like to follow our passions and our desires. And so when we are faced with a, a holy, white, burning love, it hurts. And so, God's hand is heavy on Israel so that they can feel the weight of their sin in hopes of turning towards God. And, like the cycle shows, verse 3, it works. They turn. They cry out to God. They realize that, man, we've been messing up. We need something. We we can't figure this out. It's been 20 years. We're still crying out and we need someone else. We need something. We need someone to save us, to redeem us. So they cry out to the Lord for help. Verse four. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men in Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali 
and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now the first thing maybe you guys have noticed is that we get a new character. Her name is Deborah. And she is a prophetess and she is a judge. A prophetess is a fancy word for a woman prophet, in case you guys were confused. So, <laughs> now some of you may, have heard, may hear that and think, huh, let's see. That doesn't sound right. Because I grew up in church and or I've heard people talk about like the roles of men and women uh, in Christianity and a woman like being a leader in that capacity is that is that right is that wrong like uh, how do I come about this or I just skip the page like I just won't talk about it so let's talk about it <laughs> is there really a woman in leadership role a judge over the nation of Israel and so, before you guys already think like, oh man, this guy's a sexist. He's going to say women suck. And he's going to say women this. Just l- listen for a little bit and then email Josh about everything I said. So, uh, so Deborah, yes, there, there is this woman named Deborah and she's a prophetess and she is a judge. Now, Deborah is a woman who is full of wisdom who is well-respected, and she is a strong figure. And we see that as she is a woman of, of wisdom because God has placed his spirit on her. She is a prophetess. So she speaks to the people what God desires for her to speak. His spirit has descended on her, as we see in Numbers 11.25. Those who prophesy are those who have the spirit of Yahweh descending onto them. And we see that in that moment in Numbers 11.25 that the spirit of God descended on a, a lot of people, a multitude of people, and they all were prophesying, men and women. And so she is a woman who has wisdom. She is a woman who, has, who can provide direction to the people of God. God uses her powerfully and mightily to be his mouthpiece. A woman he chooses to descend on his, to send his spirit on and to have her speak for him. And in Exodus 15, we see that same instance happen again with Miriam. Right? If you guys remember back then, Miriam is Aaron's sister or Aaron's sister. And Moses' sister, right? And so the, their sister Miriam is a prophetess, Exodus tells us. And she speaks and dances and celebrates and worships and praises God. And so, Deborah is a woman full of wisdom. Not only that, but she is also a woman 
of well, she also is well respected, as it shows that the people of Israel would come to her for judgment. Right? I mean, imagine this: like she's this woman sitting under a palm tree that she decided to name after herself. So she's like, "This is my, this is the Deborah tree now." So just that's where you guys are going to call it. So she's sitting under her own tree, chilling there, all the way down in Ephraim. Right, and Israel's pretty large, especially if you're walking around it. It's not like the size of Brentwood. And so there she is in Ephraim, and then people around go to her for judgment. They travel miles and miles away, days and days on journey to be able to come to her and ask her questions, to hear her opinions, to hear what she has to say. They knew what she had to say was important, and so they wanted to hear it from her. And so this isn't a woman who is just any old woman who, is, you know, those people are just like, oh, man, like this lady, she's just like a cranky old lady. She's like, to talk so much. No, she was a woman respected. She was a woman full of wisdom. And on top of that, she was a strong figure. We see her displaying her strong figure in verse 6 as it says that she sent and summoned Barak and then confronted him on top of that. So not only is this woman a a strong presence, but she's like, hey, get that guy, bring him over here, and I'm about to ask him, what's your deal? Like, why aren't you doing the things that God is telling you to do? She is so strong that Barak even looks at her and says, listen, this whole battle thing is pretty scary and I would love it if you'd come by my side because I don't think I can do it. And so he sees her value. He sees her strength. And so she is a strong figure that knew what needed to be done and followed through with it. But now the question lies, does that mean she should have been raised as a judge? All these qualities that she displays, all these characteristics that Deborah has are very good and godly and awesome characteristics. They are not something that a woman should shy away from, but rather seek after. Women ought to be full of wisdom, ought to be full of uh, a a strong presence. They ought to be respected. But I believe that the answer is no. No. Deborah should not have been made a judge. And I believe that Deborah would agree with me as well. So here's the thing is that we, we're also introduced to a second character whose name is Barak. And through Barak, we start noting that he's a different type of guy. He's, through his interactions that we've seen so far, he seems very passive. And what's interesting is that the author doesn't really tell us any other man in the nation of Israel. It doesn't tell us another character that comes up. And it tells us about the 10,000 men who follow Barak, but it doesn't give us detail about what they were like or their character or or what they portray themselves as. The only person, the only picture that we get of a man from Israel is Barak. And so the way that the author depicts Barak is in a passive and disobedient manner. Deborah has to call to him and ask him why he hasn't taken action yet. 
In verses 6 through 7, it shows that Deborah knows that not only God has commanded Barak to go in Sisera, but that God has promised him victory. She's looking at him and saying, what are you doing? Why, why are you sitting still? Why are you still at home? Why aren't you assembling the men? Why don't you remember that God promised that he would deliver you? Why, why are you still home? What's going on with you? And his response reveals his heart. Well, I, I'll only do it if you do it. What? You're telling me the God of the universe has told you, has commanded you, go out. Go out and gather 10,000 men. And, and I will bring Sisera to you. And I will deliver him. You will have victory. And he's just like, ah, oh, well, if you do it, I'll do it. Passiveness. I don't want to take action. I just rather sit back. I'd rather have someone else do it. Can you do it, Deborah? This is so hard. I mean, you're just sitting under a tree. Just get up. Can you do it instead? And we see the similar thing happen again in verse 14 later on as Deborah tells Barak as they're at the mountaintop, as, they're, as, as, the, as the battle is starting to come close to them, he tell, she tells Barak, go down and fight. Does not the Lord go out before you? So we start seeing that the way that Barak is painted is in a very passive pi- picture. He's a disobedient man. And the author kind of leads us to assume that the men of Israel are also this type of way. There is a lack of a manly presence, of a manly role, of a manly leadership, protection, provider. In chapter 5, that is also connected to this chapter, as Deborah and Barak have a song that they sing because they have victory, and they're praising the Lord for all their victories. Deborah goes on a rant in the middle of it and says, all these tribes are lazy and they didn't do anything. They didn't come to help us. They want to sit by their ships and they want to tend to their flocks to listen to them whistle. Have you ever heard a sheep whistle? What are you waiting for? You're sitting by lazily, idly doing nothing. You're passive. And so we see that the heart of Israel, the heart of the men of Israel, is pictured in, Bar- in Barak. They were passive. They did not want to take their responsibility. They did not want to take on their roles as leaders. But instead, they decided to sit back and be passive. And what's interesting is passiveness, man, if you are a guy, and this happens to women too, but if you are a guy, passiveness is huge. Huge, 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 huge. I know, because I'm a guy, and I struggle with that. So, just in case you're wondering. But... We see that as men, you give us an option to not make decisions, to not set, to not like step up, to sit back, to have someone care for us. Oh man, we'll quickly jump to that. Our flesh desires that. One of the biggest issues in like marriage, marital relationships is the man treating his wife as a mom. He's just like, why, 
why are the dishes still dirty? Why is the bed not made? Why is my, my clothes dirty? Why is my food not made? What's going on? You're supposed to take care of me. You're supposed to uh, tend to me. You're supposed to, I need this. Like, why aren't you taking care of me? And the woman's just like, oh, I'll slap you so hard right now. <laughs> why are you passive? Get your butt up and help me do the dishes. And you're just like, and you see that this tendency that we have as men is to be passive. It's to sit back and to let someone else do it. Someone else can do it. Even to the point of, just tell her to do it. Why can't she do it? Why do I have to get up in the middle of the night and check to see if there's an intruder in the house? Tell her to do it. Why do I got to tell that big guy to stop yelling at us? Tell her to do it. Like, Why do I have to do this stuff? And some of us, unfortunately, have even seen that in our own homes growing up. Through our own father figures or through other families maybe that we know of. And we see what happens in that family is we see this strong, faithful woman who makes the decisions of the household, who leads the family, who protects for the family, who will sacrifice for the family, while the father passively sits by and allows the wife to take on the role that is meant for him. And see, again, what I want you guys to understand is these characteristics that this woman takes on does not show that she is a horrible woman. It doesn't mean that because the woman is strong, that because she is faithful, maybe she has more faith than her husband, does not mean that she is wrong in her doing, that she ought to be quiet and sit down. But the, what, the sin of that situation falls on the man, his passiveness, his inability to stand, to be the person that God has commanded and created him to be. And so in that vacuum of sin, in that absence of a manly presence, the woman is forced to rise up. The woman is forced to take on the roles that the man ought to do. And the reason why I believe that Deborah would agree with me on this reason that she ought not to have been judged is that the author shows Deborah purposely placing herself in ways to encourage Barak to be a man. In so many different ways, she sets herself up even though she is stronger, even though she has more of a, a probably militaristic mindset, she is more uh, in tune with what God desires for his people and how to redeem them. She steps back in various roles in order for him to be able to stand up, even in the point when he tells her, listen, I only go to battle if you go to battle with me. She warns him. She says, listen, Barak, bro, look at me. If I go to war with you, If I go to battle with you, you will not have glory. Cicero will fall into the hands of a woman and you will have no glory. And what happens here is Deborah's not saying, listen, Barak, don't you want the glory and the fame and the pride and all the good stuff that makes you feel great and you stand up and you want to stand on top of Cicero with your hands all, you know, in the air? That's not what she's doing. She's not trying to puff Barak up. But she's saying, listen, Barak, if I go with you, if, if you want me to go with you, what's going to happen is you are not standing as the man. 
you are not standing up in the role that God has created you as provider, as leader, as protector, and you are depending on me. So what's going to happen is we're going to go together, but listen, Sisera's going to fail. The battle will be won, but you will have no glory because you did not act and get called up to the role that God has called you. You did not fulfill the role that God has pursued you and pushed you into. You will have no glory. And in verses 10 and 14 and 15 and 22, we see Deborah doing different things where she is behind. She stays behind to allow Barak to be the leader, for him to lead the men up the hill, for him to lead the men down into battle. And then all of a sudden, Barak all of a sudden gets a confidence boost and he chases after Sisera into the wilderness. And you're just like, and you see that the author is letting Deborah stay low. She is not all of a sudden as prominent or as this forceful figure that you would expect her to be, that she has potential to be. Why? Because she chooses not to. Deborah is a God-fearing powerhouse of a woman. But because of the disobedience of the men in Israel, there is a distortion in how the roles ought to be. And so... Deborah steps up as judge instead of a man that ought to have taken on that role. And what I want you guys to understand real quick before we uh, jump into, or before we move on from this is uh, we talk a lot about what it means to be a man. And, uh, or at least, you know, I do because I have guys in my groups. I talk about that. Girls probably don't talk much about that. We probably should um, help your girls understand what a man ought to be. Um, help your girls understand what to look for in a man. That would be really helpful to shame some of these boys sometimes. But anyway, so um, what I want you guys to understand right now is when we, through our Christian worldview, through our Christian mindset, when we tell people to be men, when, we're not, when, we, when we encourage and uplift men to, to be like men, when they don't act in those ways, when they don't act as a biblical man who is uh, a protector, a leader, uh, a provider, self-control, holiness, all these great and wonderful attributes, the opposite of that does not mean that he is a woman. So many times in our culture we say, why aren't you acting like a man? You're acting like a girl right now. And we, we, we tend to set this oppositeness of, okay, if you're not this powerful, strong leader of a man, you're, you're, a, you're a sissy woman. No, 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 no. That is not biblical whatsoever. The opposite of a true man is an ungodly person. Godly men and godly women have equal attributes, equal value. The opposite of both of them are ungodly people. Okay, so I just want to make that clear. When I, when I say that Barak is not acting like a true man, it doesn't mean that he's acting like a woman. No, 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 because if he was acting like a woman, maybe he'd actually do something like Deborah, right? That is a godly woman who knows how to act, knows what, how to take charge, knows what to do, and is God-fearing. But instead, he acts disobedient and passive. So... We read in verse 7, 
kind of depicts and shows everything. And we see that, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Deborah is reiterating what God has prophesied and what he has promised to Barak. And his response reveals again his heart. I will only go if you go. Instead of responding in faithfulness, Barak responds in doubt and is forced to take action by leading Deborah into a role that she not ought to be. And so, he gets his army, right? The story continues, he goes on, and he gets his 10,000 men, and they go up to Mount Tabor, and then through that, you're like, okay, the battle's going to come, right? The, the intensity's starting to heat up, and Sisera hears about it, and he's like, what? The Israelites did what? They have 10,000 men doing, all right, let's get them. 900 chariots, get ready. And they like turn the chariots on, right? Because that's how it works. And like they get all these men ready to go. And they're just storming down ready for Mount Tabor. And then Barak's up there with 10,000 men. And he's just like looking upon them. And you're like, man, that probably, you know, it's probably like a gladiator moment or some type of like, I don't know, war movie where he's just like, Barak's probably going to give like an amazing speech right now. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to hear it. And Deborah's just like, hey, up. And you're like, what? What happened to you? Get up, bro. Like, they're here. You got to go down. Did not the Lord say that he would deliver you, that he would deliver them into your hands? And Barak's like, okay, fine, I'll go. And so down he charged with the 10,000 men, and he meets with Sisera, and the battle continues, and it says that God routes them into him. They, he routes the army. He routes Sisera to Barak. And it says that, in verse 14 and 15, if you guys look at with me, chapter 4. And Deborah said to Barak, this is her rebuking him, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down, the mount, went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And what's interesting about this, if we, if we notice it, not only do we see that God is the one in control, God is the one routing Sisera to him, but if you guys look at the geographical location of this, and you guys don't care, but I've studied this through other classes unmeaningly and related somehow because God is providential. So in this mountain, there is, there, the mountain is here, and in the middle there's this valley called the Jezreel Valley. In the Jezreel Valley, there's a stream in this river called the Kashan River, and it talks about this here where it says that the Lord routed them to that area, right? And so they go into this area, but in this fertile, beautiful area, the drainage kind of sucks. So what happens is the water builds up, and the ground gets all muddy and, and, and just very hard to walk through, like, kind of like a swamp type like a land, Right? And what happens is as the chariots of iron, this heavy chariots run through this muddy water, run through this muddy soil, they end up getting stuck. And so God is orchestrating his, with the knowledge of the geography that he has there. He says, listen, they're going to route this way. They're, they're, the chariots are going to get stuck. Their big, powerful ammo, right, the weapon that they were going to hit you with, which is their iron chariots, are going to be disabled. 
the thing that you fear the most, which we see in the, again in the beginning of chapter 4, is right, it says, like, Sisera had a great army with 900 chariots. You're like, oh, shoot. He has 900 chariots. This sucks. But God routes them, and he subdues these chariots. He is in control. He is the one delivering them. And God is the one who delivers his people. It says that he delivered them by the edge of the sword. And that all the army were destroyed. Not a man was left. And that Sisera fled. So Sisera now flees, right? And he's running away and he's going towards this town. And he meets this tent. And this lady in there called Jail is there. And he's like, hey, Jail, like, we're friends, right? And she's like, yeah, we're friends. Come on in. So he goes in there. And he's just like, I've been running for days. And I'm thirsty as heck. And people are chasing me, trying to kill me. Can you, can you give me water? So I can just like rest and stuff. And she's like, yeah, I'll give you water. And she gives him milk. And you're like, what? Why'd you give him milk? And what I believe is going on is that the author is warning us that we ought to be lactose intolerant. And so, uh, and you're not safe if you drink almond milk. It's there for you too. No milk at all. I'm just joking. That's not what it says. <laughs> I think essentially what the author is doing is kind of like a, a literature play where he's just showing like, hmm. Something's up with this girl. Why'd you give him milk instead of water? Right? It's kind of like this weird, like, what? Why'd you? What? And all of a sudden, you see what happens. And she drives a tent peg through this fool's skull, and he dies on the ground. It's in there. She does it. And the Bible is very descriptive of it. It says that his head was stuck to the ground. She fastened it to the ground. And so Sisera dies in the hand of a woman. Sisera dies drinking milk. So don't drink milk from other people. No, that's not the story. But that's not the moral of it. So Barak comes, and he's running through, and he's just trying to find Sisera because now he's a man, right? He's like, yeah, like we kill everybody. I'm a man. His adrenaline is pumping. And Jail's like, hey, uh, there's someone here in the tent. He's like, oh, I can't wait to kill this fool. Right? And he opens the tent up, and there Sisera is dead on the ground with the tent. Peg driven through her head, driven through his head. God orchestrated the whole thing. God was in control the entire time. And what we see through this story as Judges wraps it up, or chapter four wraps it up in twenty-three, it says, So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. In the hand of and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So, in the midst of these, right, we see this story, and we're, we're seeing all this stuff play out, and we're, you know, we're like, oh, man, like, these people went down this. And at the time, right, you can just imagine what these people are thinking, like, wow. Aren't we so lucky that, you know, the army went through this, like, mud pie right here, and we're like, the chariots broke down. Man, that's so great. Oh, who killed Sister at jail? Aren't we so lucky that she just decided to, like, drive a tent peg through his head? This is so crazy. Coincidence are nuts. And you're just like, nah, dude. Verse 23, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. On that day, God subdued. God was in control. God delivered the people. And what's interesting here is what we, what we see is that, again, the picture of Israel, 
They are disobedient. They are living in sin. They are against God. Yet, despite that, despite their disobedience, despite their barracks, inability to have faith and chase after God and to obey what he says, in the midst of that, as he's disobeying God to his face, God is still in control and still sovereign and still delivers them. And this is a perfect picture of us perfect picture of our disobedience we don't have time to go through this too quick in depth but if you guys turn to Ephesians chapter 2 we'll be able to kind of get a glimpse or not kind of we will get a glimpse of what this looks like in our own lives Anyone know where Ephesians is? Just kidding. I got it. All right. So, what we see here is that we notice that God has redeemed the people through the disobedience. And when we read chapter 2 of of Ephesians, we start noticing some similar ideas and some similar concepts being brought up. Paul starts off by talking about how, listen, you are dead in your sins. You are dead in your trespasses. You cannot do anything. You follow the prince of the power of this air. You follow the course of this world. You are sons of disobedience. Instead, instead of following me, instead of desiring me, you live out the passions of your flesh. You carry out the desires of your body and your mind. You want anything and everything but God. Your nature, your, 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 what you have inside, that gut feeling drives you consistently towards sin. And we start seeing that cycle and you start remembering like, oh man, Israel always sinned. Israel always fall in, falls into that sin again. And we start feeling that weight of like, I'm a disobedient child. I have desires. I have passions in my flesh and I want to follow them. And I've noticed and I, and I can't get out of this sin. And because of that, because of your nature, you are a child of wrath. God's hand is upon you. Because you desire sin. Because you want to carry out the desires of your flesh. Because you desire to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. By nature, you are a child of wrath. God looks upon us, God sees us as sinners and sees our sinful nature and his wrath flares up. Our utterly sinful self angers an utterly holy God. But, are you guys are waiting for that, you guys are like, please just give it to me. But, but God is rich in mercy. But God has great love. But God has abounding grace. But God is fully just. That he made us alive together in Christ. In the midst of our disobedience, distorting the complete creation order that he has set forth, as we live in that willingly and knowingly, looking at him in the face, as our sin gives him righteous anger he chooses 
to redeem us through Christ. In verse 8, Paul, Paul brings us out more when he shows us that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but rather a gift of God. In the midst of your disobedience, God has promised you deliverance. He says, listen, there is a path and there is a way. As you are angering me, as you deserve complete hell, I choose love and I choose mercy and I choose grace. And I have made you a way. God has given us a promised victory in Christ. We now have faith that death is defeated for us. Our reality is no longer children of disobedience. But we are now children of obedience. Through Christ and his spirit, we have the ability to say no to death that is defeated. To say no to sin. Because of Christ's work. For those of us that have not placed our faith in Jesus you remain a child of wrath. And you are not innocent. You are sinful. And you anger a holy God. But God has made a way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you, God, for your son, Lord. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for, Lord, in despite of our disobedience that you chose to have mercy, chose to have love, and abounded in grace, Lord, through your son Christ. That Jesus has taken away our sin, Lord, through his death and resurrection. He has absorbed your wrath, Lord, what we righteously deserve. So God, as we reflect on this, as we reflect on our evil desires and our ability to constantly lead away from you, Lord, let us humbly depend on you knowing that it is only through you lord that we have redemption and salvation or for you has prom you have promised us victory amen